Ever wondered how we went from imagining space travel to landing on the moon? Or from dreaming about sentient machines to having Siri in your pocket? Join me as I explore crazy concepts and incredible ideas from science fiction and how scientists and inventors have turned them into reality. This is episode four, the one with the gravitator. Antigravity, worth a lot of money if you can prove it exists. So when I was 12, I read a book called Antigrav by Robert Fisk. The book follows these three children who find a red stone with extraordinary anti-gravity powers on a beach in Scotland. And technically it's anti-earth gravity because the red stone actually seems to be pulling towards the moon. You have to suspend your belief in science a little bit for this book. I mean, for one thing, you have to believe it's possible for an object to be repelled from Earth's gravity but still attracted to the moon. But on the other hand, I've been to Scotland and I'm pretty sure there are no beaches. At least not by Australian standards. Antigravity wasn't exactly a new concept when Fisk came along in 1978. The magic antigrav pebble idea was first floated in 1630 when Francis Goodwin wrote about a stone called Ebolus that could weaken or strengthen gravity. Making spaceships out of anti-gravity metal, such as Joseph Adderley's Lunarite in 1827 or H.G. Wells's Caverite in 1901, helped fictional adventurers escape the Earth and head for the final frontier of space. Percy Gregg steps up a notch in 1880 because he invents a type of anti-gravity energy called apogee, while C.C. Dale just uses boring old anti-gravity paint. And, of course, anti-gravity wouldn't be complete without thinking about applications to human flight, another topic we've been writing about since Daedalus first glued together wings for his son Icarus in Ovid's Metamorphoses in, oh, about 8 CE. Now, I mean, most science fiction stories about anti-gravity are pretty low on physics and fairly high on mystery. Before the 1920s, the explicit scientific principle behind anti-grav wasn't well explained. The closest we got was probably H.G. Wells's Caverite, which worked through some sort of buoyancy principle. Sci-fi titan Jules Verne famously took a very dim view of the lack of science in H.G. Wells's scientific romances, pointing out that when he wrote science fiction, he was always careful to base it on actual scientific principles rather than imagination. Well, be careful what you wish for, because in 1916, a patent clerk brought anti-gravity crashing down to Earth. That's not entirely true, but it has a pretty nice ring to it. By the time Einstein published his paper on general relativity and gravitation in 1916, he was no longer a patent clerk, but he was teaching physics at the Prussian Academy of Sciences in Berlin. His paper in 1916 essentially proposed that gravity was a result of matter bending space. So if you imagine taking a wooden frame and stretching a piece of cloth over it to make a sort of panel, like a blank canvas for a painting, Lay that canvas flat and put a stone in top. The canvas will dip a little bit with the extra weight. Heavier objects will stretch the canvas more. This effect is gravity, except the canvas represents space and the stones represent objects like stars and planets. Really dense objects like neutron stars and black holes pretty much just stretch the canvas right out. The thing is, it turns out that anti-gravity is kind of sort of maybe just a little bit impossible under general relativity. Not that this stopped people looking for it. In 1921, high school student Thomas Townsend Brown was playing around with a high voltage Coolidge tube, an old school vacuum tube for generating x-rays. 
I'm pretty miffed we didn't get to play around with some of this cool sounding material in high school. The best we got were Bunsen burners and, you know, those little flight tubes with um, air jets that, you know, levitated objects on them. Anyway, Brown found that if you placed this cool lid tube on a scale with the positive electrode facing up, the tube's mass seemed to decrease. And if you turn it around and put it on the scale with the positive electrode facing down, the mass seemed to increase. Brown logically concluded that he had found a way to physically manipulate gravity. Over the next eight years, Brown would refine his machine to include large capacitors storing electrical charge like a giant battery in the form of disks. And he noted quite excitedly that when he flicked the power switch to his newly minted gravitator on, the capacitors would jump. Et voila! Anti-gravity! Brown promptly patented his disc capacitors in 1928, calling them gravitators and the broader field of research electrogravitics. He boldly published a book in 1929 titled How I Control Gravitation, and even coined the term B-Field Brown Effect to explain his jumping capacitors. Brown was supremely self-confident. He even tried to showcase his design to scientists and military officials in the 1950s, only to take an arrow to the knee when the Caltech engineer observed that what Brown had actually succeeded in reproducing was the well-known electric or ionic wind phenomenon. However, while scientists dismissed electrogravitics, the military were more interested. It wouldn't be serious science without the military getting involved. Military research into science had led to some seriously fantastic tech. Computers are a prime example, with military research in the 1960s and 70s generating a serious boost to computing capabilities. So, it's not surprising to hear that the US military were, allegedly, keenly interested in anti-gravity. There were some reports that the US Air Force ran a gravity control propulsion study in the 1950s and into the early 1960s, based on Brown's gravitator device, and that major aviation companies were also interested. But you have to take these reports with a grain of salt. The 1950s and 1960s are what historians term the policy by press release era, a time when leaks of classified documents were a common way for US military branches to circumvent their traditional chains of command and get support and funding for pet projects. Now, this was a really commonplace tactic when projects were about to get canned or weren't demonstrating the results that people thought they should be. And the main point of it was to garner response from the public and get public support for this funding. We're also in the middle of the Cold War era between the US and the Soviet Union, meaning that just about any project could get extra funding by claiming that the Soviet Union was actively working on the same project or was close to a breakthrough. Any criticism of additional cash was promptly brushed aside as being weak on defence. Military funding for anti-gravity projects in the US was ended by the Mansfield Amendment in 1973, which was passed explicitly to end long-running unsuccessful projects. Electrogravitics stuck around though, with conspiracy theorists today claiming it's been highly classified by the military since 1960s and is the basis of UFO and B-2 bombers. It's been dismissed, however, as a crank theory. Byron Price described it as, quote, much ado about nothing, started by a bunch of engineers who didn't know enough physics, end quote. That's a pretty serious burn. Takes on anti-gravity at the time in science fiction were, surprisingly, slightly more scientific in nature. James Blish invented the spin dizzy in 1950, which used rotational force like a gyroscope to counteract gravity and transport whole cities across space. 
His idea was based on uniting the gravitational and electric charge concepts. If a rotating mass plus gravity makes magnetism, then a rotating mass plus magnetism can make antigravity. This isn't a bad idea. We already knew that centripetal force could simulate gravity. Any kid on a fast enough ride at a theme park could tell you that. Arthur C. Clarke, in his epic 2001 A Space Odyssey, would later use rotational forces to create artificial gravity on board his spaceship. The same idea was used by Larry Niven in Ringworld in 1970. If you can generate gravity through rotation, surely you can generate anti-gravity. After all, Newton's law says that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. It's almost sad that Blish's Spindizzy was brought back down to Earth by the discovery of magnetic field reversals in both the Earth and the Sun, and the fact that Mars doesn't have a magnetic field despite having mass, gravity and rotation. Never let the facts get in the way of a good science fiction book, guys. More serious scientific efforts into anti-gravity research, in the meantime, continued. In 1948, Roger Babson founded the Gravity Research Foundation to look into ways to reduce the effects of gravity. The foundation drew the attention of several famous people, including Clarence Birdseye, a famous inventor you probably associate with frozen peas. He and Mendel from last week's episode would probably get on like a house on fire. After a few years of failure and ridicule, including being mocked as the single most useless scientific project of the 20th century, the Foundation gave up on trying to manipulate gravity and create gravity shields, and pivoted towards a, getting a better understanding of gravity. Other initiatives studying anti-gravity and gravity propulsion systems sprang up. The Institute for Field Physics was created at the University of North Carolina in 1956, and they held an inaugural conference on the role of gravitation in physics. In the aviation space, the Research Institute for Advanced Study hired a handful of gravity researchers called the Field Theory Group. Interest gradually turned to negative mass, led by the work of Hermann Bondi in 1957. The equations of general relativity and Newtonian gravity both appeared to predict that negative mass would produce a repulsive rather than attractive gravitational field. I never thought I'd describe physics as repulsive, but there you go. However, the negative mass would fall towards regular matter, because according to Newton's law, F equals ma, the acceleration will point in the opposite direction of the gravitational force. Regular mass, however, will be repelled from the negative mass. Imagine, if you can, two equal but opposite masses, one desperately fleeing, the other desperately chasing. In this closed system, the total kinetic energy remains at zero, but the masses continue to self-accelerate. It sounds pretty great, hey? The only problem is that we haven't discovered negative mass yet. It's not in the standard model of matter of particle physics, which contains all currently known forms of matter. There is a bigger problem with gravity in the standard model. Under the standard model, each of the four fundamental forces have particles that carry it. Collectively, these force carriers are called bosons and each boson has a specific name depending upon which force it carries. Electromagnetism is carried by photons, the strong nuclear force is carried by creatively named gluons, and the weak nuclear force is carried by W and Z bosons. The boson for gravity is called, also very creatively, the graviton. We have not yet found this elusive graviton. Gravity is also the last sticking point in attempts to synthesize the four fundamental forces into what Douglas Adams fans might call the fundamental interconnectedness of all things, but which physicists called unified field theory.
Ultimately, efforts to date have suggested that there might actually be five forces, not four. But if this fifth force, carried by a gravity photon, exists, it would affect antimatter in a way very similar to antigravity. Unfortunately, experiments carried out in the 1990s to measure this were ultimately unsuccessful, as was the 2013 CERN experiment looking for an antigravity effect using antihydrogen. We haven't found antigravity, but we haven't proven it doesn't exist. If you find it, you can get rich quick. There's a lot of money available for the person who can invent a working prototype. The Hudde Stiftung Institute is offering a million euro in prize money for anyone who can float an object of at least 20 grams in mass for a minute or more around 10 centimetres above a supporting structure. Unfortunately, known phenomena such as helium balloons or magnetic levitation are not eligible, or else I'd be grabbing some strong magnets and heading on over to Germany for a holiday, some cheese pretzels and a cool million euro. In the meantime, if you want to see anti-gravity in action in a science fiction classic, check out the first Star Wars, Episode 4, A New Hope, and watch Luke Skywalker's X-34 landspeeder, powered by anti-gravity tech, called a repulsor lift engine. That's all for this week, guys. Thanks for listening. The next episode will be on time travel. So tune in tomorrow for more. <laughs>